Baptist Bible Fellowship. Please welcome John Metter. Thank you so much for leading us in worship today. Appreciate that. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Hope that you're bright and awake and ready to go today. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to take those Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, then as well as that, we're going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, in addition to that, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as well. So only three texts today, that's all, in these next few moments. I'm so thankful to be with you. I love to be in a, uh, in, a, in a room like this where there are pastors and leaders and pastors' wives and those who have a passion for the Word of God. I love to be in a room like this. Because when you're in a room like this, all kinds of ideas are flying around and all kinds of uh, inspiration is taking place. And, and uh, it's great to learn from one another. It's great to see what all God is doing in other parts of the, uh, of the kingdom. And so I'm thrilled to be here. This is not my first time here. This is, I think, the second or third time here in this church and a great place, got an incredible uh, potential going on around you and I know you're reaching people in a great way and uh, I want you to know that you as pastors and leaders, wherever you are placed, wherever God has put you, he's put you there to make an enormous, incredible, supernatural difference in the lives of those in your community. And part of that is how you interact with them outside the walls of the church, but also part of that is how you equip them inside the walls of the church and that's the focus this morning. And that focus is preaching from the text, and uh, that's what I've uh, been assigned to do, and I'm looking forward to that. I call my message today the X Factor in Preaching. I've been pastoring for 32 years, and uh, there are a lot of things I've learned about what not to do when I preach. And uh, there are some things that, that I also believe that God's Word says about our preaching and about our teaching ministry. And I want to talk about some of those things with you today. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read God's Word today. And as you stand, I'm also going to ask a special favor of you, and that is... Uh, you're a pastor, most of you in the room, or many of you in the room are pastors, and so you know what it's like when nobody's up front and everybody's at the back. You know what that's like, right? And every church I've ever pastored in, nobody sits on the front row unless they're desperate for counseling or they're part of the program, right? So I'm going to ask you before I read God's Word, move up about eight or ten rows. Would you do that? Let some of these lonely people up front have friends. Come on up here. Come on up. Look at the aisles right now. Multitudes are coming down the aisles. Decisions are being made. People are coming to faith already. We haven't even started the message yet. Please come as far as you can. I'd like to see the white of your eyes. I'd like to be able to read your lips when you talk to each other during my message. By the way, I am, I am, uh, I am deaf. I don't know if you know my testimony, but I am literally deaf, legally, profoundly deaf. Uh, I lost my hearing at the age of six, so I have lost 95% of my hearing. I don't hear, I hear almost nothing. With hearing aids, I hear sound. Uh, I hear vowel sounds. I don't hear consonants, so I read lips. Uh, my wife and I have six children, and that means that I slept through all six of their upbringing. And she had to deal with it all. And, um, and I had a good reason, you know. I didn't have selective hearing loss. I really had hearing loss. But I can also read lips with precision. That means if, if you talk to your neighbor today during my message, I will know exactly what you say. <laughs> So be careful about what you do here. Thank you for moving up. Nehemiah chapter 8 is an Old Testament passage that deals with what I call the X factor that you see all the way through Scripture when it comes to the teaching of the Word of God. If you ask, my, ask me what X factor is, let me just kind of define that for a moment. It's a noteworthy quality that makes something extraordinary. 
If you say this has the X factor, we're saying there's a variable that in any given situation becomes that thing that has the most significant impact on a situation. And what I want to do today is talk to you about the X factor in your preaching and teaching ministry. The thing that has more impact than anything else that you would do from the pulpit. Nehemiah chapter 8, it's a time of revival. The walls are being rebuilt. If you were to read the first eight verses, you would see all kinds of amazing things taking place. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stands on a wooden podium, which said made for the purpose, and he had his leaders around him. Uh, Ezra opens the book, it says in verse 5, in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above them, very reminiscent of what we do on a week-by-week basis. And so we haven't come too far from that time of revival when it comes to preaching the word. And I love this in verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's a great way to open up your message, by the way. That's a great way to do that. But I want you to notice in verse 8, it says, They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. It wasn't simply the reading of the law, but an explanation of that law that they read that day that fueled the revival in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. Now jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul gives instruction to Timothy, and he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. In other words, the Scripture that you read, exhort your people to apply and give instruction about the doctrinal backbone behind that word. Now jump over one more little letter to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And that'll complete our reading when we get to verse 1 and 2. And these words are probably the most uh, passionate plea from the apostle that you find anywhere. And he says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you so much that we have this word. Teach us, speak to us, inspire us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit to allow the word to do the work for which you sent it in the lives of each of us as pastors or preachers and teachers, but also in the lives of our people who hear the X factor that changes them from the inside out. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Please be seated if you would. So today I'm going to be in a lot of different places today just kind of explaining some things about what I consider the X factor in preaching. You know, we live in an X-rated world anyway. We live in an X-rated world. Very little is censored. I mean, everybody gets to look at everything. Explicit movies and pictures sell. Whether we're talking about sex or war or violence or politics, people want the raw truth. They want the raw edition of it. They want to see what's been forbidden or what's hidden. They want to look, and then they want to decide for themselves what they think about that. That's just the world we live in. And because we live in that kind of world, it becomes very important for us to know how to take God's Word and and expose it in such a way where people see what's otherwise hidden and without insights until it's explained, until it's taught 
And we have this enormous privilege to be able to do that. We need to learn to preach in a world where nothing is in sort, where nothing's taboo. We need to learn to take all of God's word, every word, every key thought, every nuance of the scripture can be laid out for all to see. And, and I've come to realize that explicit preaching convicts. When we explicitly teach the word of God and preach the word of God, whether we're speaking about sex or violence or marriage or money, the attention of the people will be riveted to the word of God when we treat it like the word that it is, a surgeon's scalpel or a huge sword of the spirit. You know, the word is bigger than we sometimes give it credit for being. It's more powerful than we realize sometimes or act as though we believe it is. A number of years ago when eBay was first coming uh, into popularity, my, my son and I, at the time he was about 10 years old, his name was Joseph or Joey, and Joey was a knife collector, and so he liked to collect these little pocket knives. You know, when you're, when you're 8 or 10 years old, your parents should not give you anything bigger than a knife about that big. We call them pen knives, right? Little bitty knives, and he still managed to cut his fingers up and everything, but we let him, we let him do that, you know, and I used to say to him, don't call me unless there's blood. If there's blood, call me and we'll come fix it, right? That's how you parent well. That's how you parent well. So we got on eBay one night, and, and uh, we were looking at knives, and he found one. And he said, I want to order that, Dad. So we made a bid of $9.95. That was our limit, $9.95. And the bid was accepted. We won the bid, and so they said they would ship it to us. Well, I gave my church address, and so um, over the next couple of weeks, I kind of forgot about it. You know, buy a little knife for your kid, you forget about it. It's going to get in the mail someday. And at the time, that eBay wasn't reliable. Amazon had not been invented. Nothing got there in the next day, right? So we're just waiting and not even thinking about it. One day, my assistant calls me, and she said, hey, your sword came in. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there's a package here, and there's a sword in it. And I said, no, I ordered a, a little knife for Joey. I think it's like a, a letter opener. It's kind of, you know, just a little thing. And she said, no, come down and look at it. So I came down, and she, uh, she got the package out uh, off her desk and said, here, here's what came. Here's what you ordered for your 10-year-old son right here. <laughs> this is literally the knife that I ordered for Joey. And, uh, and I want you to know this will cut your hair off. If you guys who have beards want to give it a shot, come up after the end, and we'll, we'll let you know how sharp this is. It was bigger than I thought it was. And so I brought it home, and Joey's eyes got about this big around, and he said, is that mine? I said, not anymore, it's not. <laughs> now, he's 23 years old. It's still not his sword. Now, I say all that to just help you think about this for just a minute. The Bible is bigger than you think it is. The Word is more powerful. It's more sharp than you know that it is. As a matter of fact, if I believe this word is as sharp as it claims to be, I'm going to want to use every single word of every single text so that my people can have benefit of that. So how, how does all that happen? How does that all unfold? Well, let me just share several things with you that will help you know my perspective on that and how I've begun to practice that over the last 30 or so years several keys, several components of X-factor preaching. And it's unfortunate today, but each of them have an X in it. So this is a triple X message. I just need to give you warning about that. When you realize that it's triple X, it wasn't by accident, okay? It wasn't lost on me. So number one, taking notes today, 
X-factor preaching is, first of all, expositional. Expositional. Now, this is not a moment for me to condemn any other kind of preaching. There are times when I do topical preaching, and I believe that we have a lot of examples of all kinds of preaching, but the X factor for me over the years has been expositional preaching. It's where I see the biggest impact. It's where I see the word most honored in the context in which it was given. So it's exposition. By that, I mean the kind of preaching that is either systematic or general approach of going word by word and verse by verse through the text, unpacking the truth and not leaving any of that good stuff out because it all is inspired. And when a pastor takes his people through a book or a chapter or a text, he's bringing more than what he chooses to bring to the pulpit. He's bringing what God has chosen to stay in that text to the pulpit and to the people. Sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes it's a lot of work, but it's never boring, I can tell you that. And after more than 20 years of preaching and pastoring, I've come to several conclusions concerning the subject of preaching that, that allow me to be in the place of, of being a, an expositional preacher day in and day out. Let me give you some of those conclusions. First of all, I've concluded that entertaining people does not transform lives. Now, I'm not saying all other kind of preaching is entertaining, but I will say today there's a lot of entertaining preaching out there, and it's not transforming people's lives. I've learned that it doesn't work like that. Since we uh, have a world that's so clearly focused on entertainment, we are entertaining ourselves to death in our culture. Pastors sometimes get this idea that I've got to be entertaining as well. And so they come up with stuff that uh, doesn't quite fit what the text says and kind of a sideways energy waste of time to get people interested when really you have the content that is absolutely able to grab the heart of people and we sometimes neglect that. I think it's more important for us, instead of preaching enjoyable messages, to be concerned about repentance and transformation and the renewing of the mind that takes place when we really do honor God's word. And we don't have to become something that we're not. I, I'm not a comedian. I love guys who are hilarious and funny. I just love listening to them. And some people have that gift of humor and, and all that. I don't have that. Some people have great creative ways of preaching. I don't seem to have that either. But one thing I know I have, every time I stand in that pulpit, I have a text. I have a text, I have a passage, and that passage was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God breathed. And I know I have something when I stand in that podium, that pulpit. That's very, very important. So entertaining people doesn't change lives and transform lives. Secondly, I've concluded that over the long haul, preaching the hottest topic of the week cannot result in balanced, renewed living for our people. Our people are very selective in their listening habits. And uh, we tend to think, if I've got the right topic, if I've got the right title, the right approach, uh, then, then maybe I'll grab them, but if I don't, I've lost them. And we put a lot of time and energy into building a bridge between the Scripture and people, but we can connect with our people and the Word of God well, and when we do, and the focus is on the Word, their lives literally can be transformed. Now, I'm an advocate of preaching about all the issues that people deal with today, but life is more than just those issues. For example, I can talk all day about the importance of marriage, and I can preach messages about marriage, but if they're not having a walk with Christ, everything I say about marriage will be something that they can't do because they don't have a walk with Christ. I've got to have a balance that covers everything that God covers in the Scriptures. 
Thirdly, I've concluded that while my presentation is extremely important, my content desires far and deserves far more time and attention, my content. What am I bringing to the people? If I'm not careful, how I present truth can take on more importance to me than what I present. And that's a fatal flaw for pastors. Scripture, Scripture stands on its own. Jesus taught creatively, but the truth was what he taught. And it was the truth that was the basis of everything he said. And over the years, I've come to realize my time and study and devotion to God's Word pays far richer dividend than the endless search for the best story or the catchiest video or whatever. And I use some of those things, but my focus is on the Word of God. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, If you continue in my Word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I want to be able to focus on that. The truth is the actual agent of transformation. It's the truth that transforms people, not your presentation. A few years ago, I was preaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I got to a, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'll tell you a little bit about how I do that in, in a moment, but when I got to chapter 4, uh, it's a series of verses about immorality. So in planning the series, uh, I called the series Pure Sex, Pure Sex, and I put it on a billboard not far from our church, and I uh, didn't realize how people can misread two words, because most people thought it said pure sex, but those who knew what that scripture said realized it meant pure sex, right? There's a difference. But as I walked through the verses over a six-week period of time, about eight verses, six weeks, the first week that I began that series, there was a, a young man and a young woman, I guess they were in their early, or late 30s, early 40s, I'd say young, that's how they were. That's young, that's young, young to me. And they were uh, not married, they were living together. She had been married twice, um, he'd never been married, but they were living together. She had three daughters from previous marriage, and she came to the series because she wanted to teach her teenage daughters what not to do, which was everything she was doing. And after that message, I got a letter from her. And she said, as you walk through that text, she said, I became convinced that I was in sin. And I came home and told my husband, you've got to, or my, my boyfriend, you've got to move out. If you don't move out, then, uh, then I'm going to move out. Because the reality is I can't remain in this what I saw in that text convicted me that I need to change this thing right here. So he moved out, and uh, they stayed in contact, but they stayed apart from each other sexually, if you know what I mean. And so, so at the end of three weeks, he proposed to her. The story is unfolding. He proposed to her. She said yes, because he was miserable without her. He gave his life to Christ. They got married just one weekend later, and then she came back and she said, as a result of reading through and walking through first. Thessalonians chapter 4, no one thing you said, but as I looked at that text day in and day out, I couldn't get away from the fact that God was speaking to me personally from the Bible, and that's the first time I'd ever seen that happen. So they married, their uh, three daughters are uh, all believers now, and, and they walk with the Lord. It's an amazing story of how just preaching through a text without any understanding of what people are going through, you can see the transformation in their lives because the content is the Word. So it's important 
for me to come to conclusions about how I'm going to preach week by week, and that first aspect of that is expositional is very important. Secondly, the X factor in preaching exposes the text in every way. It exposes the text. You want to unveil the text, but first it has to be unveiled for you by your own study. I want you to study the word. It exposes the culture, the context, and the people to whom it was first written. It's really difficult for you to apply a text if you don't understand the people to whom it was first written and the purpose for which it was written. I'm not trying to be academic because I am decidedly not an academician. I'm not a professor. I'm a practitioner of God's word, of preaching week in and week out. But I must know what that word says. Because when I know the culture, the context, and the people to whom it was written, it allows the text to come alive to me first. And it allows the specifics and examples that rivet the listener to how God addresses the issues of that day. I call this insightful exposure. It exposes the text, first of all, to the preacher so he can know the insights that God has packed into that. And when we honor the text, we keep from dumbing down the power of God's word. When we honor the text, we prevent the practice of steering clear of controversial issues. If you're going to go through every part of that text, you're going to hit some really tough subjects over the life of your preaching ministry. And we equip our people to take on the tough stuff and remind them that God has something to say about nearly everything in their lives. I believe that. One of my favorite preachers was a guy named Ron Dunn. Actually, he's more of a Bible teacher than he was a preacher Never was loud, never raised his voice, but when he taught God's word, it was almost as though he picked up a large diamond and looked at it from every angle. And you could see that in his explanation of the word. You'd read the text, and he would talk about it from this angle, then he would turn it and talk about it from that angle. You know, if you're ever in a jewelry store, and you pick up a precious stone, you hold it up to the light so that you can kind of turn it and see every angle in that beautiful stone. It says something about the beauty, and it says something about the value of that stone. This preacher used to do that. He, he would do it so well that we felt like we knew the text from every angle. Again, it wasn't sounding like it was a professor in a classroom. It was very relating to us, but we were seeing the whole text. And if you don't know that well, you can't communicate that clearly. If the text is a mist in your mind, there will be a fog in the pews. You've got to have clarity, and clarity comes from spending time. Let me just for a moment, because we want to be somewhat uh, instructional today, if I can use that word in the sense of how do we really walk through a text, part of my assignment is that. Let me just share with you my runway. It's a several week long runway in preaching through text of scripture, and I'm going to use a past experience when I walk through the book of James. First, I was drawn to the book of James as a relevant study to our people. I just began to feel like the message of James was what our people needed to hear. This is at First Baptist Eulis where I pastor. And the Spirit began to lead me to that book. In my general reading, I kept ended up in James. I would hear and see different things about the book of James that just helped me know as a pastor our flock needed these truths. And so I began to be drawn to that. Then after that, I began to read and prayerfully reread the book of James over several weeks' period of time. Uh, I read that book at least 30 or 40 times over the course of a week or two, just sitting down, reading in its entirety, making note of different things in James. Next, key verses in an outline of the whole book began to emerge in my mind after making observations about that. 
After that, my study began to break down into key divisions of the book. As a matter of fact, when I got through with that process, I had five series, five six-week series in the book of James, so that when I preached the book of James, it wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, we're going to start in James 1, we're going to go all the way to James chapter 5, 17, but, but rather this first series deals with the storms of life and temptation, and the second series deals with what real faith is all about, and so forth, all the way to the end. So I was able to see the divisions of the book and so, show my people this book is incredibly rich when it comes to the trials in your life. It's incredibly rich to see whether you have authentic faith. It's incredibly rich when we deal with all kinds of selfish sinfulness in our lives. Chapter 3. On and on and on. But it came out of a prolonged study in one book. Not me getting an idea that, oh, our people need this, so I'm going to find the topic that I can nail that down with, but rather seeing the book and letting the book speak the way it does. Next, after that, I allowed people to lend their creative input into working on the names of these sections. I have a group of people that regularly meet with me when I do these kinds of studies. And I let them speak into that, that whole approach because I want to connect with those that are young and old. I want to connect with men and women. I want to connect with all kinds of people that can give me insights as a pastor that I may not otherwise have. Some of us, frankly, as pastors, over the years I've learned, some of us are quite frankly bookish. Now, that's not a bad word, but it means we're always in the book and maybe not with our people. And I'm telling you, as a shepherd, you've got to know your people. No matter how large or small your church is, you've got to be with them. You've got to know what they need. And, and when you know that and when you are in the Word, during your time in the Word, you're able to speak to them powerfully, and they know you know, and they know you know them. That's huge. So I have a, a group of people that speak into me when I'm doing that. Finally, the weekly study leading up to the Sunday, I'm to preach the specific message in that series rounds out the whole process. And it's the most critical and intensive part of the preparation, my study for that week. That week. This is the place, this is the time frame where I see God speak to me so clearly so that there's a passion when I stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning and fire in my bones. So what does that look like? Here's a five-step process that I would suggest that you could think about. And it may be a process that you do. You may have a better process, but here's what I do. This process keeps me tied to the text and to the context. It keeps me from being John. It keeps me from being John Metter. And it keeps me from thinking about who this thing is really about. It's about God. And so here's how I do that. It gives me a sense of thoroughness. It exposes me to others who have worked through the same text, but here's the process. And when I'm through with that process, I know I've done the right preparation. And when I pray before I stand in front of our people, I can confidently ask God, God, bless what's going to take place because I've asked you to give me insight all week long, and I've asked you to give me the insights and the truths of Scripture. All I'm going to do is honor your text. That's all I'm going to do. So don't let your word return void without having accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. And I can confidently and boldly come before the throne of grace and say, God, God, this is what you've shown me. Let it impact their lives. Step one is grammar and word study. My practice is to actually type the text out on a word processor, however short or long that passage is, and I diagram the sentences and the paragraphs. I want to know the subjects and the verbs. I want to be able to do that and look at each one and every one of those words in the text through either the lens of Greek or Hebrew, depending if it's New Testament or Old Testament. I use a dictionary. I use a lexicon. 
And I, I love the Word Study New Testament Dictionary and the Word Study Old Testament Dictionary that was put together by Spiral Zodiades a few years ago. Uh, and, and I value him. He mentored me for seven years. And so I've had the ability and the privilege to sit under his teaching and know how accurate that is. I type the specifics in a very smaller font underneath each individual word so that I have a single sheet of paper and the text is there and you have English and it's almost like a parallel where I type out what it says in Greek, what it means in Greek, what the context is, what the parsing of the verbs are. That takes me about three hours. When you get into the practice of that, the text takes about three hours. But it's probably the most insightful three hours of my week. Because I go from a casual reading of it or even a repeated reading of the text to an in-depth understanding of those words. And you can do this using Greek tools. You don't have to have a certain level of seminary training or Greek training to do this. This is a great, great period of, of my week. And even when I do that, that's almost always on Monday, approaching the next Sunday. By Monday, I am stoked. I am stoked. By Monday, I'm telling other people what's in this. By Monday, my assistant's saying, enough already, I'll wait for Sunday, right? And my wife has had enough of it by Tuesday afternoon. She says, can you just please not, just, just don't spoil it for me. Just let me hear it firsthand. You know, I, I'm, I'm excited about it because it's God's word. Because I didn't come up with this. God did it. God spoke it. And, and that's what I know the word of God to be. And so as that enthusiasm builds, it's not a matter of turning up the volume. It's a matter of how do you keep it down? It's contagious. It's enthusiasm. God is working through the words, so grammar and word study. Number two, step two involves taking the word studies in grammatical details and doing a simple sentence structure. What's the verb? What's the subject? Diagram that. You see the main ideas, you form an outline of the text. Let me just say something about text-driven or expository preaching that's important. If your points can't be seen in the text, it's not expository. If your points can't be seen in the text, now I don't mean it has to be word for word, you can be creative in how you name them, but, but if you don't help your people see that your points are tied to the actual verse you're preaching in, you're not teaching them how to observe scripture. And one of the greatest things I observe from great teachers is when I listen to them teach, I think, how did they get that? And then as they teach, I go, oh, that's how they got that. It's right there. And you know what has, that has the tendency of doing? Later on down the road, five years down the road, someone's in a great trial or a great temptation, and they don't remember what that preacher said, but they remember that verse, and they go to that verse, and guess what? God's still in that verse for them. And they become dependent not on the preacher but upon the Word, and that's what we want to accomplish. We want to accomplish uh, the building of disciples who love this book more than they love any preacher. And I'll tell you what else they do. They begin to be discerning about who they do listen to. And in this day and time, that's an issue. We want our people to be biblically literate. And you lead the way. Our people rarely get tied up with some of the false teaching that's going out there all over the nation, man. So accessible to so many people today because they have an appetite for the word. If it doesn't tie to the word, Man, sorry, they're not going to listen to you. But by the same token, they're not going to listen to me if I don't do it tied to the word, right? And that's what we want. We want them to be tied to the text. We want my points tied to the text. That's what makes it text-driven. It's a really critical moment when I come to that place because I yield over and over to what I want to say so that I can say what he said. So we, we began to put time into that. The points of an outline must absolutely be accurate to the text. They must connect with the language of the congregation as well. So I ask questions like, 
when I say this, how will they actually perceive what I'm saying? Should I say it this way or should I say it that way? While this is part of my process, it only takes me a couple of hours to kind of work through that, but I continue to go back and revisit for accuracy and for clarity. It's very important. When I type the points of my message, I always type them next to the portion of the text from which I got it. When I put a point on the screen, week by week, where I pastor, you'll see the point, and then you'll see that section of the verse from which it came. If I can't put a text next to the point, I don't put the point up. I don't use the point. Because I want them to see how it connects. Step three, when I do my extended reading, I read commentaries that I've come to trust after I've done all my study. Let me give some cautions there. First of all, don't read your commentaries before you do your personal study. You'll find that they short-circuit your study. We're lazy people by nature. And oh, if John MacArthur said that's got to be right. But I found he's not always right. Amen? Nobody's always right. You need to know what the Word says yourself. Second, if you, work, if you do your word studies and grammatical work, you'll, you'll, you'll not be able to stomach some of the commentaries. I mean, they will be repulsive to you because of the bad doctrine in some of the commentaries. I mean, you know what Scripture says, what truth says, so you're reading some of this stuff, like Barclay, for example, one of the most popular commentators. He, he's got some great background stuff, some great culture stuff, but boy, he's a heretic. And the reason I know that is because I know what the Bible really says. So choose your commentaries carefully. It's so important that we do. Thirdly, limit yourself to four or five commentaries at the most. Don't overdo this. Trust your study. Trust your time with God. Trust the Holy Spirit's power to illuminate the Scripture, to shine the light on the Scriptures. Step four is illustration work. This is fun, but it's difficult sometimes. I review the key points of the text, and I ask myself, are there word pictures embedded in the text or in the words themselves? And if those word pictures are embedded in the text, or as I'll show you in a moment, word pictures that are embedded in individual words, I use those word pictures because I want people to walk away seeing the illustrative power of the Word of God itself. That's important. Use them without hesitation. Stick with personal illustrations or facts of life that God can use properly and accurately to illustrate truth. Be open, be vulnerable. Today's connecting with people today, you've got to open up. You've got to be real. You've got to be authentic. They don't want to see some pastor or some preacher that's got a wall between himself and the people. Be real with them the way Jesus was. I want you to illustrate, open up your own soul. Let them know your failures, your struggles. They'll respect you for that. They won't dishonor you for that. They'll respect your honesty. You're not perfect. Who in this room has it all together? Would you raise your hand? If you raised your hand, you're hard of hearing. <laughs> you don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. Nobody's got it all together. And everybody knows that. So be honest, be vulnerable in your illustration. Step five is the last stage. And what I do is I clarify key phrases and applications. I spend a lot of time saying, how do I paint this on? How do I paint it onto their lives, to their circumstances, to their situations? Five steps, about 15 hours of study and prep, all for about 40 minutes of preaching. If I don't put that time in, then I feel like that I've still got a ways to go. 
Saturday night are a clarifying time for me because I try to pace myself off through the week. Finally, this kind of preaching exegetes the words of the text themselves. The words themselves have amazing, powerful meanings. If, as Scripture claims about itself, all Scripture is God-breathed or all Scripture is inspired by God, then that means how much of Scripture is inspired? Say it with me. All. All of it. Genesis to Revelation, all of it. So that means every word has something for me as I become the teacher of our people. And so each word was carefully chosen by the Holy Spirit. It's laid out in such a manner by design. And so when I come to the pulpit with the intention of exegeting the words, I'm simply saying that exegete the words means to take the direction of the message from out of the actual words and the actual text. And that's what we mean when we say, let me unpack the text. Let me unpack it. My wife is, uh, when she travels with me, uh, she helps me pack my bag. Now, I'm, I'm a last-minute packer. If the plane leaves in an hour, then I'm packing about an hour and 15 minutes from that moment. That's what I do. I throw stuff in, and, and, uh, and it doesn't look right, but I've got an iron in the hotel room, right? That's always a given, right? That's why there are irons in the hotel room, by the way, because of the men who pack like I pack. But when my wife goes with me. This packing is immaculate. Everything's got its place. Socks here, shirts here. I mean, she's got this packing system that's unbelievable. So when I get to a hotel and she's packed and she's with me, I take a very carefully folded shirt and I put it in the drawer right where it goes. And I mean, I don't have to iron it. I don't have to do anything. I'm unpacking a well-packed suitcase. Let me just tell you, you're the unpacker of a well-packed text. Be careful in how you unpack it. Be careful in how you place it. There's a design behind all, all of that. And if I just take that shirt and throw it in the drawer, she goes, ah, ah, I've already ironed that once. I don't want to iron it again. Now, don't get me wrong. She's nice when I'm nice. She really is. When you unpack the text, it's already been carefully designed. It's already been placed the way God wants it to be placed. So unpack it well. Over the years, I've reminded myself of this frequently. People would rather hear about what God says about the subject than hear someone say what they think God said. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with saying, thus says the Lord, when you're really saying what God said. Everything is wrong with you saying, thus says the Lord, if you're not saying what God said. And we should fear that. So in the same way, explicit pictures that come from word exegesis leave mental images in people's minds that stay with them for many months and many years, helping them remember what God has said and what God has done. The original languages that we work with are powerful. They're, they're by design. Greek is the most technical, complex language ever. It's, it's like the difference in English and Greek is like the black and white of an old cathode ray TV and the 4K TVs of the day with depth and color and brilliance. It's that different. And so the discipline of you, the pastor, to be in the original languages, at least with the word study helps, is very, very vital. The same is true of Hebrew, even though Hebrew is more of a word-based language in the sense of pictures that it paints rather than the details of the many nuances of the language itself that Greek has. There are pictures there, but they create vivid imagery for your people. For example, when preaching through the book of Joshua a few years ago, I brought our people to a place in Joshua 5, 
And one of those most unforgettable images in Joshua where they've crossed the Jordan and God's asking Joshua to do something very unusual. He's asking them to circumcise the entire next generation that day. He called the place where they were Gibeath Haaroth. And if you do some word study into that, you'll see that that word in Joshua chapter 5, verse 3, means the hill of foreskins. Now, you remember when I was unpacking that? Since I'm a lip reader, I watched a lady about three rows back who was about 80 years old, and she, she always watched the messages with the, with the glasses down low in her nose, you know, looking over at me and then looking down. And I saw her turn to her neighbor when I said, it means the hill of foreskins. She said, as she looked at her neighbor, did he say foreskins? I read her lips. I said, yes, it says foreskins. Can you imagine the thousands upon thousands of foreskins that day that were piled on that heap, on that hill? Can you imagine the unforgettable image that, that God presented to Israel that really spoke to them circumcising their hearts and not just their foreskins to follow him? God into the new land. That is a vivid imagery that we don't shy away from that we only get when we dig into the scripture itself and when we present exactly what the scripture says. I could not have come up with that illustration on my own in all my creative days, my best creative days, nor would I have said it if I thought of it first. <laughs> Can you imagine what people would have said about me if I had said, hey, I had this idea the other day, I wonder what that would have looked like if uh, everybody was circumcised and they piled it in the hill like that. You know, 10,000, 100,000 foreskins. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> but when God says that, that's a powerful, unforgettable image that you won't forget for a while. And it speaks of the sacrifice of laying behind selfish hearts so that we can go with God. Just two words, compound Hebrew word naming a location. I say this to you because I want you to remember that God's word is filled with creativity, it's filled with powerful word pictures, and in itself is the truth that people need. And when we're serious about using it all, as he was about giving it all, people will hear, they remember, they'll be transformed by the truth we preach. It's serious stuff. At the end of my life, whenever that will happen, short time from now or long time from now, I don't know. At the end of my life, I know I'm going to stand face to face with Christ. I don't fear that moment because I know my sins have been covered at Calvary. Amen. I don't fear that moment. But I also want to be able to give an account to him, an account of faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness to his word is becoming the, it's the most important thing that we as people who are called to preach the gospel, to preach the word, that's the most important thing for us. And if we don't put into practice being faithful with the word early on or starting when we realize it, then we won't have a testimony at the end that says we were faithful week in and week out with your word. At the end of the day, if I'm faithful with his word and believe the power of it, then the fruit that comes out of that, whatever fruit that is, is his fruit. But if I am leaning on my own understanding and my own approach, then the fruit that comes out of it 
may not even be real. They may be following a speaker instead of following the living God. And at the end of it all, you want to lead them all to the living God through his word. I want to pray for you today. Thank you for the time that you've given me. I want to pray for you and the extreme responsibilities that we have. It's extreme. It's not a small thing. It's an enormous privilege and responsibility and opportunity. And the word is bigger than we can even realize. My prayer is that we will look at it through eyes that, that see its power. And with a schedule that we build that will allow us to maximize that. Father, in Jesus' name today, thank you so much for the privilege of being in this room with all of these saints, all of these leaders. And I know week after week they seek to be faithful, just as I seek to be faithful. And Lord, my prayer is that you will use your word in revolutionary ways in our lives and in the lives of those that we teach the word to. And Father, I pray that you will give us that, that enthusiasm, that zeal that comes from one walking with you in your word and be able to powerfully share it, not because of any gift that we have, but because of the gift of your word. Father, bless these pastors and the, these leaders as they go back to their churches in the days ahead and use them powerfully, letting them have a testimony one day that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.